so it's a huge thing as a speaker to have a very low bar when you go on stage. You know, they introduce you as a CPA and people go, oh, this is going to be dry. And I come out and flash a basset hound on the screen and people are going, wait a minute, what does this have to do with accounting and debits and credits? Welcome to Life in Accounting. We are a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for this podcast. Even a nerd can be heard. That's a quote from our guest for today. Jeannie Whitehouse joined us for the program, and I think you're really really, really going to enjoy this. As you'll hear, we're not straying from our purpose. Jeannie did start her career very much as a typical accountant in tax specifically, but along the way, she found that she much more enjoyed training and speaking with groups. She's worked out of her proverbial shell, as they say, and now she's a keynote speaker. She still does some training in accounting with business owners, actually, in California. However, she's quite the comedian as well. This interview was really fun for me to record, and I know you're going to enjoy listening to it. If you do find value in this podcast, please check us out online at whereaccountantsgo.com. As I always mention, we have all kinds of career-focused materials there for you. Books, blogs, a new job board, all our other podcasts. And as I've mentioned recently, we have our new feedback tool there as well. We would love to hear from you. Simply click on Ask Mark in the upper menu bar and you can record a message for us in your own voice or a question, of course. Once again, it's at www.whereaccountsgo.com and click on Ask Mark. Well, with that, I just know you're going to enjoy this. Let's go ahead and get started. Here's Jeannie Whitehouse. Hey, Jeannie, welcome to the show. Good morning, Mark. Greetings from Napa Valley, California. Ooh, Napa Valley. Fun, fun, fun. (laughs) Paradise. (laughs) Well, for the audience, I have a special treat for you today. We have Jeannie Whitehouse on the line with us, and I know this is going to be a fun talk. Jeannie is a CPA, and she started in a traditional role like we all typically want when we're starting out, but she's really morphed her career over the years into something that she's much more comfortable with, and I know it involves some self-revelations earlier on in her career, so this is going to be a really fun conversation. She's also been recognized as one of the top 100 most influential people in accounting, and frankly, she's just really funny as well, so I know you're going to enjoy this. Jeannie, I hate to put off getting into all the things you're doing now, particularly the even a nerd can be heard business, because that really caught my eye. (laughs) I think it's important that people understand where you came from, though. So what initially got you to consider accounting as a possible career in the first place? So I was a nerdy seventh grader growing up in public schools in Greenville, South Carolina, which you can probably already tell is I'm from the South originally. And I really liked math. And for some reason in seventh grade, I had already decided that that was my thing. And so I went to my teacher and I said, what do you do for a living when you like math? And she said, you have two choices. You either teach or you become a CPA. And I said, which one makes the most money? And she said, CPA. And so I went, okay. And it just so happened that my dad sold tax books for Commerce Clearinghouse at the time, which is now Walter's Kluwer, to CPAs. So that's what he was doing. He was out there working with CPAs, and he would come back and tell us that was a great career. And, you know, they have really nice offices and things like that. And, and so the combination of those two was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And it was like I was on that track from that moment, the nerdy seventh grader, 
in the back of the room talking about math. I wanted to be a CPA, and it was partner in a firm. And I mean, I had this whole plan from that point forward. I had to get to college, the right college. I had to get good grades. I had to double up on the math so I could get to calculus before I got out of high school. I mean, everything that I did lined up from that decision forward. It's really kind of embarrassing to be that nerdy as a seventh grader, but it's where the title, even a nerd, is sort of all wrapped into everything. But I mean, it was that simple. And I had also been, my dad would bring home these books with this like onion skin paper in them that had all the tax code and all the tax law updates on it. And I would update the books for him. So he'd take client books that had gotten out of date. And you used to have to take out the old code section and replace the new stuff based on whatever had happened in the law changes or in case results. And so I would do that for him over and over. And I kept going, I wonder what all this junk on all these pages means. And so I already had an interest in really understanding what this tax stuff was all about from that point forward. Interesting. Okay. You know, that helps me with one of my first questions then, because when we were doing our little short pre-show talk, frankly, I was a little surprised that you started your career in tax, but now that's starting to make sense. I see where that came from. Was that, were you sure it was going to be taxed the whole time? Well, no, not really. And what happened is, and I knew I wanted to be big A. That's what we used to have back in the day, as you recall. I knew I wanted to start out in big A. And I went to University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And, you know, when you're in an accounting program, you hear that. And they would come to campus and the big A would interview. And the people that got jobs with the big A were the ones who were on the right track and all that stuff. So I had that in my head. So what happened, unfortunately, is when I get to college, all of a sudden it's like, wow, these people are smart too. I'm not the only nerd in the accounting program. There are a bunch of us. And a lot of them are actually way smarter than I am. And so it was like a real shock. I was like, wow, something's off here. But I also was really interested in a bunch of other stuff. So I took fun courses, things that I really was interested in that I had never realized I cared about, like drama. I'd already really liked English as well as math, but I took some drama classes, not to do drama, but to learn about you know, Shakespeare and things like that. And I took art classes, but I took my first computer class. And at that point it was computer programming and I was hooked on that. So I took a bunch of electives like advanced physics and calculus and programming so that I could learn about the computer stuff while I was majoring in accounting. And it ended up distracting me a little bit from my accounting coursework because I would get so engaged in running to the computer center in the middle of the night to submit my key punched cards, Mark. That's what we were doing back then. (laughs) to get my program results out that my grades for accounting suffered. So when it came time to interview, I interviewed with all the big eight, and I think I had a 2.9 average. And the cutoff for being in the big eight was a 3.0. So they talked to me, but they were all kind of discouraging. And I talked to all of them, and I somehow managed to have a fairly decent interview, but they were concerned about the grades. So the whole interview process finishes. I don't have an offer, and I get a call back from Deloitte. I had a cousin who was in the Charlotte office of Deloitte, and we were able to bond by talking about him during my interview. So the interviewer remembered me because of that connection. And so they got through all the interviews, and this interviewer was looking for somebody to come to a small town in North Carolina called Hickory, North Carolina. And he called me up and said, you didn't meet the grade cutoff, but of all the people that we talked to, we like you in spite of your grades. And if you will consider a tax position in Hickory, North Carolina, you can join Deloitte. So this is a small office in a redneck town in a tax role. And if you want to join Deloitte, that's how you can do it. And I went, yeah, I don't care. I don't know where Hickory is, but yeah. 
So that's how I really got into tax. I was willing to do whatever, but I also already had sort of a slight leaning for tax, but I really didn't know what anything was like when she got into the job. And so that ended up being a great opportunity. Hickory was the furniture capital back then, and the Hickory office was a satellite of the Charlotte office. So we had connections to the bigger office and the big training facilities and a bunch of other stuff. So it was actually a great place for me because it was small enough that it felt like a safe environment to start in. Interesting. So, yeah, I know the power of networking and it's important who you know and and that kind of stuff, you know, but it got you a waiver. (laughs) Yeah, the the power of being memorable is really, I mean, just standing out because I had a connection that made me memorable enough to stand out. So, yeah, you just never know what small thing can lead to a bigger opportunity. (laughs) So when you got into Deloitte, I know you spent a few years in tax. Did you enjoy it? Yeah. You know, I never thought about did I enjoy it. I was okay. so busy trying to win. And, you know, we're competitive folks. We've worked hard. We've set this path. We know what we want to do. We have this destination. And so in my case, I didn't stop to think about whether I like it or not. I just tried to get good at it. And I really struggled. I mean, I didn't know it. I couldn't figure out why it was so hard for me. And I had great support. I had people that were helping me and teaching me. So I spent the first two years, then I met my future husband. And then I transferred with Deloitte from Hickory to Greenville, South Carolina, which is my hometown. Stayed at home prior to getting married so I could save up, but worked still for Deloitte. And then transferred after we got married to Nashville, Tennessee. But while I was in the Greenville office, so in the middle of my, so I was at Deloitte four and a half years. So in the middle of my four and a half year career, I get my first review from a partner, the tax partner that I reported to in Greenville. And I got basically an F score on every evaluation. So every review point that you could get, I got an F. I mean, he gave me the worst score on everything. And if you think about where I came from, from seventh grade on, all I want to do is be a CPA. And here I am in the middle of this effort and I'm just, I'm failing. So it was just devastating. And the reason, he said, all of your work activities are impacted by your poor communication skills. Oh. And so I have to give you an F because you're communicating so badly. And also, your voice tends to be a whine. (laughs) And I was like, great, I'm going to have to have voice box transplant surgery or something. What in the world am I going to do with this feedback? What am I supposed to do about it? And I just took it in. And just stewed about it. And so rather than becoming better, it made me totally unconfident from that point forward. So the wine tended to get even worse, a quieter wine. But I mean, it was a totally internalized depression. I didn't even know what to do about it. It didn't really give me any tools to help me. So soon after that, I transferred to Nashville. But I knew that he had already sort of sold my negative brand to the next place. So I was already sort of marked that I wasn't succeeding in the tax role. But I proceeded to get to the next level and do some basic stuff. But by four and a half years, I had my son and I was like, I'm not doing this. This is not where I belong. So then I went to corporate tax. But that devastation, that moment, and you know, the feedback was spot on, but it was the fact that there was no guidance on what I could do to make it better, how to go about doing it. And in fact, the feedback made my communication worse because I had less confidence that I'd had going into that experience. And again, I felt like I had this badge of failure that I carried around from that point forward. And everybody could see that I wasn't very good at it. So, I mean, and that pain is, I think, what's motivated me to get out there now and help other people not be in that same place that I was in. So, you know, every negative leads to big positive. You either grow beyond it or you let it shut you down. And hopefully I eventually turned it into growth. Yes, yes. Wow. For the audience's sake, you know, this was in the 80s and, you know, there wasn't as much talk about coaching and empowerment. And, yeah. and, you know. <laughs> it was none. We didn't talk about those things. It was like cutthroat, get to the next level, and you have two years to pass your exam or you're out. 
you have basically at the four-year mark, you're either on track to be partner or you kind of know you're not going to get there. So that's, you know, four and a half. Like, well, it's clear I'm not getting to the next level, so I'm out. So it's very much sort of a military hierarchical structure that they had in those days. So how did it work out for you when you moved into industry? That was actually good. I got into a large corporation in Minnesota, so we transferred to Minnesota. Talk about it, a culture shock. <laughs> Moving from the south to the frozen tundra of Minnesota. But I did corporate tax and I was a tax manager. And basically we had, this was a huge wholesale grocery company called Super Value, great company, and a cute little town called Eden Prairie, Minnesota. And they had divisions all over the U.S. So we had a really complicated sort of tax situation, but we also supported all of the retail grocers around the U.S. So it was still kind of like a big eight job where you had multiple clients. But you also had a focused job for the company. The problem with that role is that once you figure out how to get all of that done the first year, the second year you can tweak what you're doing a little bit, but you basically have gotten as high as you're going to get. So I went to my boss and said, what's next? And he said, you wait for me to die. And I looked at the guy. He was the healthiest runner. He was like this great, really sharp guy. And I thought, well, that's going to take 50 years and I'm not going to stick around and freeze myself to death. For that long while I wait for things to change. I don't want to do the same thing over and over again for the rest of my life. Um, it's time for us to go. And at that point, other situations with my husband worked out and that we've decided if I was going to get another job, I needed to move back to family to the South. So we made the transition. I found another job in Atlanta at that point, And we moved down there, moved the family to Atlanta okay. to take another okay. role. It looks like you spent some time in the software arena. I know with Sage and maybe in some other roles as well. Take us through that time also, because I thought that was interesting also. I mean, you're definitely, you have the interest in math, but you're certainly a very extroverted individual too. (laughs) Well, you know, nobody would have ever considered me that. That's what's so interesting because I was very shy. I mean, all the way through high school, I was just focused on my studies. I was very shy. I didn't speak up. I never did any kind of speaking or acting or anything like that. I would have never, I hated to speak. In fact, at our graduation, I was, there was one of us had to speak out of three of us and the two of us stepped back and the third person had to take the speaking slot at the graduation ceremony. So, I mean, I repelled by the opportunity to speak in public. So I would have never thought that would be something that I would ever end up doing. But the interest in computers is what really inspired me. And I really not had this directive to be the CPA. I think computer something would have been the area that I actually pursued because it really drew me in a way that accounting, accounting was sort of repetitive and didn't really intrigue me the way that computer programming and that side of the numbers did. But I never thought that would be a career. And in fact, when I interviewed, the accounting firms told me that was a bad decision to make, to waste my time with computers when I could have kept my accounting grades higher by not doing that. You know, it was a waste of your time to understand computers, which I think is hilarious today because it really gave me a a huge benefit, a leg up on people that were trying to do accounting because I understood the technology piece. So I continued to find ways to apply technology. When I was at SuperValue, I actually developed the LIFO program in, in Excel. I wrote macros for stuff. So I was automating stuff all the time and applying what I knew to Lotus 1-2-3 and Quattro Pro and Excel and whatever application came out. And the programming language that I understood helped create formulas. So I got to apply that everywhere that I went. So it moved to Atlanta, got me another corporate position, which ended up being eliminated while I was on my way moving there. Uh, my position was the only one impacted. So I left that to become a controller in a small software company that was using Peachtree Accounting. And I learned that software connected with a support person who worked on Peachtree. And then when I left that company, I built my own practice around Peachtree software and implementation and then doing the accounting attached for those clients. So I built basically my own sort of small firm really based around going out to clients and helping them use their computers to run their business. So 
I had the software pretty early on as part of what I was doing. I grew the practice to the point that I had so much going on that I realized I couldn't do it all by myself. I took it to a CPA firm that had a mutual client and said, you know, I'm bringing in all this work and I'm taking on all this other stuff that I really don't want to do. How about if you take on some of this other work and we work together? And they said, yeah, come on board. And because I had a tax background, they put me in the tax role. So I was doing the computer stuff during the day and the taxes at night working all the time and eventually made partner because of the tax stuff in that firm, which is the first time I went, oh my gosh, is this what I really want to do for the rest of my life? And the clear and almost like a bell ringing answer was no. If I stay in this role, I'm going to work myself to death. At that point, I had two children who I never saw. I worked till midnight every night and it was just killing myself. And I was drained emotionally. And so right about the time I made partner, I went in and said, I'm leaving. I need to go do something else. I had a tech company client and I'm going to start out with them. I'm going to take that client on my own. That turned into me becoming a trainer for that tech company. But it was the revelation after 15 years, getting to the pinnacle of what I had set out to do that I finally went, oh my gosh, I don't belong here. And it was a huge risk. And I was terrified. Like, this is the thing I've set out. And here I am walking away. What am I going to do from this point forward? And how am I going to ever make it up? And, you know, what's going to happen? But I couldn't do it anymore. I just knew I had to get out of there. And the day I walked out the door, I can remember it was like the clouds parted and the weight of the world just fell off my shoulders. And I felt light for the first time in 15 years. Because I had really been struggling to figure out how to get good at it. And I could never change the way I was wired to be better at what I should be doing. The detail orientation was not my strength. So I walk away, thank goodness I have this client that was a technology company. They implemented and sold project management software and they needed a trainer. And I had this accounting background and a lot of their software involved budgeting and costing aspects of managing construction projects. And so since I had the accounting background, they said, why don't you try being a trainer? And I loved it. The first time I had done that, they had all the materials created and I delivered the training all over the country and I loved it. And so that's how I got into this sort of software. And it was software related training. We had to load the software on all the machines and do all of that stuff. And then from there, I did PeopleSoft implementation. So I implemented PeopleSoft around the Y2K stuff when everybody was running around trying to switch their system. I became the trainer for that. I developed the course materials. And then from there, I got into a software accounting software company through a series of events. And that was Navision Software. So Navision was my first entry into basically being a corporate role inside a tech company. I came in to build their CPA programs, and then I became the director of product management for the software, for Navision software. So that's the long, circuitous route to how I got from accounting to tech. Was it that experience or that venture into training that sort of broke you out of your shell? Yeah. It was. Yeah, okay. It was. It gave me, because I wanted to teach people, because I understood as a CPA, you know, the frustration that we have, that nobody understands what it is we're talking about. And so I had felt that personally. And a partner, I'm spending a lot of time talking to clients. I'm out with these small businesses, and I realize that they don't understand any of this stuff, and they're terrified by us. So I already had this real empathy for that, the way they felt. I would show up, and they would just be, who is this, you know, nerdy person with the briefcase and the dumb little suit who's coming into my, you know, door factory? And working with me, and they were totally intimidated, and I would break down the fear with humor. I'd, you know, we'd have a good time. I'd make them comfortable and say, well, you know, I don't understand your business. You don't understand mine, and we're here to bridge that gap, and how can I help you, and you know, all that stuff. So I'd already felt really 
strongly that the education was important. So I had done a couple of courses on reporting. I sort of created some things to try to get some help to people to address issues that I'd faced when I was out with clients. And so I had a little bit of that. But the training really opened my eyes to the fact that I really enjoy this stuff. I love the interaction with the people. I love the education piece. And I love the, you know, the opportunity to have some fun with it and break down the barriers to learning. But the real light came on at Navision. My job there was to get accountants to understand our software so that they could be in a position to influence buying decisions for their clients. So that's what all the influencer accounting, the CPA influencer programs that every accounting software company has are about. We want the CPAs to know about us so they don't say no when a client brings up our name. So that was my job was to get them on board. And I had to do a presentation to the resellers of the software to convince them that CPAs were their friend. (laughs) And I interviewed all of these resellers before I put together a presentation. The feedback I got was, no, we hate CPAs and we don't want to talk to them. They kill every deal that we're in. So I knew I was fighting a losing battle. And of course, I am a CPA. So I was like, great, you hate me and everything I represent and all of my friends. (laughs) I had to find a way to break down to switch their mindset. And so armed with that information, I create a presentation that starts off with a humorous sketch from Monty Python about the lion tamer. And this is back in the day where you couldn't just download an MP3 or, you know, do anything on Amazon. You had to get a license from the people who had the clip to show it to a crowd. You had to go through all sorts of stuff and you had to get it on like a, I think it was a CD or DVD at that time. But you had to pay this license fee just to get the rights to show that clip. You couldn't just go on YouTube and you know show it like you can today. So I got that done. I start with this clip and I basically said, I interviewed you people about what you thought about CPAs. And basically, this is what you told me. And this clip is all about how nerdy we are as accountants. And I said, I get it. We're nerdy. You probably don't want to go out to dinner with us. But if your client has a problem, they call me before you. So you need me to be on your team. They all laughed and I was able to break down the barrier. And then I was able to tell them what we needed them to do. And I actually flipped the crowd from people with the pitchforks coming after me to people who got it. You saw the power of what we were talking about. So that was the first time I did a formal presentation that I created using humor to break down barriers. And that's when I knew I needed to do more of that. That was the moment when I went, this is my thing. I'm finally in the right slot. And this is what I need to do. How am I going to do more of this? How can I get good at this so that I can have a bigger impact on breaking down barriers to learning? Let me ask you, because... We started this out that you were a math nerd who liked computers. Yeah. Dad dad brought you onion <laughs> paper, skin, tax law, home to read, and you worked in tax to, in the last two minutes, you're, you're a trainer. <laughs> and it sounds like a really accomplished sales lady for accounting I, software, too, you know, and I, well, breaking I, down I, barriers. I wasn't accomplished. I was not accomplished at all when I started. And, you know, in a trainer, you learn. I mean, you teach class after class after class, and you figure out what works, and you figure out what doesn't. So, I mean, a lot of dedicated practice. Okay. at doing something to get better, just like you do in anything else. I mean, 15 years of being in practice as a accountant, you know, we're practicing at doing what we do. And it was the same thing. But I realized I needed to really invest in this skill set because I wanted to be accomplished. And really, I can remember the moment. So I came on board at Navision, and this was my job. And they created this new role, and I really didn't know what to do. I really sort of floundered. I created a program. I went through all this stuff. But they put me in a sales course. They put all of their team, it was like a you learn the software and talk about selling and all this stuff. And it was taught by a sales guy. And here I am, the accounting nerd in the midst of, you know, salespeople. Huh. And they made us do a presentation about the software. 
we were each going to come in the next day and do a presentation about the software to communicate the strengths and the benefits and stuff. And I went home and went, what am I going to do? You know, I'm this nerdy accountant. I'm going to just teach them about debits and credits. I'm going to just do some boring thing. And I went, I am not going to do that. And I'm going to do something funny, which was terrifying. I mean, I remember thinking, I'm going to do something funny. And I went, this is a huge risk. And this could totally flop. And it could be the worst thing that ever happens. But I'm going to take this risk. And I can remember sitting there just sweating as I thought about it and going, I do not want to do this. But this is how I'm going to make my mark. I'm going to try this, I'm going to see if it works, and I'm going to try using humor. So I ended up, again, playing off the stereotype for accountants. So here I am in a sales class, and so I brought a jar of beans in with me, <laughs> and I sat at the computer, and I had a plug. And one of the benefits of the software was that it, if you unplugged it, it, you wouldn't lose data, which used to be the big issue, because you'd crash the records, and everything would get out of whack, and you'd have to do all this rebuild and stuff. Well, the Vision had built in a fail-safe mechanism so that if it got unplugged, it could just restore back to the last clean transaction that you'd entered. So I had my beans in this jar, and I had the computer there, and I had the plug in. And so what I did is getting to my desk, I trip over the plug and unplug my accounting, and I make this big thing like, oh, my gosh, I just unplugged the accounting. And then I plugged it back in, and the transactions came back, and I went, leaned back in my chair, pulled out a newspaper, and resumed counting the beans. And went, thank goodness, I can get back to the important work. And I started counting beans because the vision has me protected. I did that, but it was also the first time I thought about playing off that stereotype. It gives us a bunch of power because I can be opposite of what they think they're going to see. And I saw the power in that, and they all laughed hysterically. So, you know, it, that was the first moment, that small moment of I can do this and the power of seeing people laugh is huge. You go, wow, they're getting it and they're enjoying it. And that's something that worked. And so that gave me the incentive again, the second time to again, play off the stereotype. What do these people think about accountants and how can I flip that on them? And so that's really what I do all the time because, you know, the bar is so low for us accountants. People think we're just doorknobs and Anything you do, including, you know, wearing a purple suit, is what I like to say, shocks them to the point where they go, wow, you're not really an accountant because, you know, you have purple <laughs> earrings or, you know, something or you like dogs or, you know, whatever it is. The fact that we have personalities and interests and things like that that they don't expect sets us apart in their mind. So it's a huge thing as a speaker to have a very low bar when you go on stage. You know, they introduce you as a CPA and people go, oh, this is going to be dry. And I come out and flash a basset hound on the screen and people are going, wait a minute, what does this have to do with accounting and debits and credits? And then you've got them hooked. You've got them curious and you've got them going, well, maybe I should listen a little bit longer to see if there's anything worthwhile here. And so it's a huge gift to be able to exceed their low expectations. I'm so glad you brought up the Basset Hound, by the way, because, yeah, when I looked yeah. on LinkedIn, there's this little picture of you and this gigantic picture of a close My Basset Hound. Yeah. So yeah. what is the deal with Basset Hounds? Well, we raised them when I was a kid. So in addition to having the uh, tax books everywhere, we had Basset Hounds everywhere. We had two female Bassets that we had. The first one we had, and then she had a litter of Bassets, and we kept the second, her, one of her female Bassets. So we ended up with two females my whole childhood, and they had litters of puppies. So we had Basset hounds all the time, and they're just amazing dogs. But, you know, they're just lay around and provide love and wag their tail, and they don't do much. You know, they're just Basset hounds, but they're just wonderful dogs. They're just all heart, in my opinion. And then I had them, we had them in my family. We had two Bassets at one time. Then we had another Basset with my kids. That's the only dog we've ever had for my family. And then the last Basset I had is the one that you have, you see on my LinkedIn. He passed away a couple of years ago and we just haven't gotten another dog. So I miss it immensely that there's not a Basset in my life. But since that, they are all heart. And so 
the way that really formed in my mind as part of my brand is, first of all, if you're going to represent something Southern, a basset hound says it all because they just lay on the porch in the summer and sweat. You know, they don't do anything. And so it's just, I sit redneck dog. They're in Dukes of Hazard. You know, every time you see a basset hound, they just represent the South. And so when I find myself in California and wine country, which if you could pick an industry that is intimidating for somebody from the South, that would be on the top of the list. Coming out here and finding myself in the wine industry, I realized that I couldn't try to fake that I knew what I was talking about when it came to wine, because I don't. I still don't. I know what to drink, sort of. I know how to count it, and I know what I can afford and what I can't. But when I moved to California, I moved from Atlanta, and I was drinking Franzia in a box of $9.99. And Napa Valley is, you know, the mecca of Cab, Cabernet. So I knew that I had this Southern thing that people were clearly going to detect pretty quickly. And I needed to figure out how to align my own self and be confident as myself in an industry where I really didn't have knowledge. And so what I began to do is play off that, use my difference, use my southernness, and use that again to break down barriers. So again, taking the stereotype. So there's a pattern here, which is becoming very clear. <laughs> use the stereotype and flip it on its head. So I created training called Le Coup Rouge Winery, which is redneck in French. And I teach people about the redneck winery and all the accounting stuff that they do wrong. And that's how I educate people about accounting concepts in the winery. So it's been the same sort of pattern of looking for stereotypes and flipping them on their head. So I find my way here. I've already been speaking. I've, I've taken stand-up comedy training. Immediately after that first presentation, I realized that's the way I wanted to go to get good at it. If I was going to use humor, I needed to be good at that. And so I took stand-up comedy training in Atlanta. actually took it twice. And so I already had that training. And so I started speaking. I ended up getting on the speaker circuit and going to all the CPA events and conferences and speaking. I paired up with a famous and wonderful speaker, Carlton Collins, who used to be part of K2 Enterprises. They do all the CPE events around the country. So I teamed up with him, got some real mentoring from him, took the training. And so I had already established myself as a speaker, which is eventually how I got to Sage, who then transferred me from Atlanta to California. So by the time I get to wine country, I'm already extremely comfortable as a speaker. And I had written my book about how to make a boring subject interesting. And it's called that and 52 ways even a nerd can be heard, which again is the brand that I have. And again, flipping the nerd brand on its head. I might be a nerd, but I can still be heard. That's the message. So I get to wine country and I'm already comfortable with speaking. And so I started speaking at little bitty whatevers in wine country just to get some connections and some contacts around the wine industry. And so by the time I'd been here a couple of years, people in the valley knew that I was a speaker. So if something came up, they'd call me and I'd speak about whatever or moderate or something. So they were putting on the first TEDx event in Napa Valley. A group of amazing people here came up with that as an idea for their leadership class. And somebody had heard me speak and gave them my name and said, call her. She's a speaker. And they called me and said, we want you to come speak at our TEDx event. And I was like, okay. And I had already watched all the TED. I was already a big, huge TED fan. So I knew exactly what it was like. Oh, my God. This is what I need to launch my keynote speaking career. And so I said, absolutely. And then I hung up the phone and went, oh, my gosh, what am I going to say? <laughs> I don't know. What I have nothing to say. I haven't created anything or developed any kind of scientific breakthrough or done anything, created any art implementation somewhere. I mean, I've got nothing. What am I going to talk about? And I just proceeded to, you know, go dark for a while and really panic. And then I started to think, you know, there's CEOs that are on, and I knew who the other speakers were, which was also bad, because you know how smart everybody else is. And you look at yourself and go, gosh, I'm just a dumb redneck from South Carolina. What am I going to talk about? And that became my speech. 
So I talked about the Basset Hound versus the Nun became the central theme. And the Basset Hound was the little frolicking heart and soul voice inside me that I rarely listened to. And the other voice was the Nun, the should voice that kept me doing accounting for 15 years that locked down all the heart and soul and passion that I had that I didn't think about until I walked away from that. So I told that story. So it's what called Leading from Within, the Basset Hound versus the Nun. And it's about listening to your truer self finding your own voice and using that to make great things happen. And it's really what led me to do everything that I want to do was embracing the parts of myself that might have been the negatives, the redneck, southern, nerdy accounting aspects of me, which are who I am. I embrace those and use those to make an impact. So that's the message that I brought. And that's where the Basset Hound really became clear as my sort of spirit animal, as we say in California, (laughs) or, you know, my brand identification is around the Basset Hound. So I use it in almost every talk because it's so representative. And part of what I'm trying to tell people is embrace, if you're a Basset Hound, be a Basset Hound. Don't try to be a fancy poodle in bows. You've got to be who you are and make the most of whatever attributes you have, no matter how sloppy-eared and sloppy they might be. And so it was a great analogy because they are, they're goofy looking. You know, who's going to respect that? But you can when you connect to people as yourself and you're not spending half your time trying to convince them that you're somebody that you in fact aren't. So it's really kind of the the secret to my path anyway is is finding out that, you know, you can play off whatever you got and use it to full advantage. Are you still doing the accounting for wineries business? I'm still doing, yeah. So I'm two days a week at a CPA firm here in Napa Valley, which has a wine focus, the wine industry focus. I came on board in 2007 to help them expand the brand. So much of what I've done is speaking outreach and training. And and the training is always around this case study of the Redneck Winery. We have our own website, lacouragewinery.com, that I created. And I'm able to come in and say, yeah, I'm a redneck. And I'm not from around here, but I know accounting. And so we can bridge the barriers. You don't understand my language of accounting, and I don't understand what you guys are talking about when you're talking about malactic fermentation and the legs on the mine and all that stuff. And so we're going to bridge the communication gap that we have, and you're going to walk away knowing something. And it works. Interesting. You do sound like you just thoroughly enjoy where you are in life right now. Every day I wake up going, especially this time of year during tax season, I just go, thank goodness, I'm not doing taxes anymore. You know, you just get down on your knees and give thanks. Thank you for setting me free from that. And, you know, just thank goodness I have the knowledge and the background of accounting, but I don't have to apply it in the same way. And I think that's the gift for us. It's a great thing to know. Accounting is most critical. I think everybody needs to know accounting. But I think some people are wired to do it and some people are not. But helping people find a way to apply it in a meaningful way is what I get to do, which is really, really fun. Well, last question before we get to the final three questions that I end every podcast with, because I'm really curious about this. I mean, is there anything you would add or subtract to your life you know, now that in order to further achieve you know, success and how you want your life to go, anything you do more of or less of or anything like that in the next few years? Um, in the next few years or what if I could rewrite the past? You want me to... Oh, ooh, that's even better. Sure. <laughs> I'll take your question. <laughs> You know, I think that's the beauty of the path, the journey that we're on in life, is that we never know which thing along our path is the critical thing that makes us able to do something else down the road. But when you stop at whatever point you're at today, wherever you are, and look back, you realize that every single one of those pain points, every single one of those struggles, every single one of those triumphs have actually led you to whatever it is you're able to do today. I mean, who would have thought all the weird stuff that I've done? I mean, look at my resume. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. But each one of those things 
has served me in the wine industry and the job that I do. It serves me as a speaker because having struggled through all of the various roles and been in accounting and done bookkeeping and done tax and been on a couple of awful, miserable audits and, you know, all of those things, I can relate to my audience and to the customers of my audience, to the accountants and their clients. I understand both sides of that. And so it's all led me to the point where I am. So I wouldn't undo any of it. I wish I had devoted more time to my children at, at some point because I think I missed some crucial years. I was traveling a good bit and then working late the rest of the time. So I think there's some years there that we all regret. But I think I'm able now to make up for some of that as best we can. But I mean, that's really the only regret that I have. But I think it was all part. It's made my kids who they are. And it's made me who I am and confident enough now to do the things that I know I want to do and to, to really not tolerate boredom or frustration or work that I don't feel I'm good at. I know there are things that I'm good at and I can find my way to doing that kind of work, hopefully, and keep doing it. And going forward, I want to do more speaking. I mean, that's my goal. I want to reach more people. I have, And every time I set a goal, it seems to just magically come together. I set a goal to do international a couple of years ago, put it on my website. You know, I changed, I put this website, which nobody goes to, so it doesn't matter. But I put it out there. For me, it's like putting it on a billboard. It's public, even if nobody ever sees it. And I put out there, I want to be a keynote speaker. And that's when the TEDx opportunity appeared. I put it up and it was then like, I think it was three weeks I got invited to speak at TEDx. So I go to that page and update it for the next thing that I want. So then I went in and inserted, I want to be an international keynote speaker. And then again, within a month, I got invited to do the keynote in a conference in Brazil. And then I repeated that this year. I went to Brazil again and did another keynote for the same client, but at a different event. So international keynote. So I want to do more of that. I want to do more international speaking. I want to do more inspirational talks, which is what the keynotes are, which is why I'm drawn to those versus educational, which I've done plenty of those as well. And I do a blend. I talk about products and tools and technology and how you can apply that to free yourself to do better and higher value work and things like that. But the beauty of what I'm doing is that everything fits together. I work with clients. I can talk about what I've learned from clients. I find out about a new technology. I can bring it back to a client. So if you saw the top 100 sort of write-up, that's what I talk about. It's that I get to be in this sort of virtuous circle where I find one thing and I can apply it to something else. I learn something else. I uncover a problem. I can go solve it. It's like this circle of connection between all those things that I'm doing. So I'm two days a week at the CPA firm working with wineries. I have a bookkeeping business. I founded remote bookkeeping with a partner for wineries. And then I'm speaking and writing and consulting with tech companies. So it all fits together. A lot of stuff going on at the same time sometimes, but it really keeps me, I think, at the top of my game in all aspects. You need to put international speaker for a million dollars on your website. Exactly. I need to put, I told, so the other interesting thing, there's this person, Doug Sleater, who you may or may not know, Mr. QuickBooks for most of my career, who had Sleater Consulting, he put on his own conference, who happens to be local, lives in Pleasanton, who's become a great friend and mentor. He gave me my first keynote speech on his stage at SleaterCon. So he started my whole keynote career. He shifted me from educational backstage to keynote. When I put that international thing, guess who connected me with Brazil? Doug Sleater. So second time, made my second dream come true, connected me with the Brazilian keynote international. So I told him I'm going to go out on my website and say I want a Porsche, and I'm going to expect him to deliver the automobile to my doorstep within three weeks. So we're waiting for that to happen. He may only have one visitor to your website, but he's a good visitor. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think he ever went to the website. He's just putting it out there. You know, that's a huge, huge learning for me. Put it in writing and things happen. Somehow, 
It makes you change. When you write something down, and at least for me, putting it on the site is a huge visible commitment. Again, even if nobody looks at it, I've made the investment in putting it out there. And mentally, that means I'm really committed to this concept and this idea. And then I think things shift when you have that clarity of commitment. Yeah, there is a lot of truth in that, for sure. Well, we probably should get to the final three questions I end every podcast with, just for time's sake. The first one's usually the easiest. I'm curious to hear what your answer is going to be. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? My proudest moment was doing the TEDx talk. Okay. That was the pinnacle of what I wanted to do, and that really was the moment because I felt like I had finally gotten to the place that I belonged. And that's not, you know, that wasn't my career to be a TEDx speaker, but it was the endorsement that I have done the right thing somehow, that all the struggle and the panic and the fear and the 15 years of pain were worth it to get me to that point. So that was the greatest moment I went on that stage and people clapped. Nobody, nobody booed me off the stage and I didn't fall off the stage. That was the other big thing. But I mean, that was the highlight. You know, and that's tough when you hit something that you see as a highlight because you get off the stage and then you go, okay, what do I do now? And the clouds don't part and million dollar checks don't start falling in from that moment. You expect that to happen, but you just go back to your job and you go back and look at the tax return or do the spreadsheet that somebody needs you to do. It's not the tax return in my case, but I'm looking at spreadsheet models and you know, you go right back and do the same thing you did yesterday. And it's kind of an interesting moment when you get to that and go, wow, this is as good as it's going to get. Now what? But then I've been able to go on and do international speaking. I mean, being on stage in Brazil a couple months ago, I think there must have been 4,000 people in the audience. And I looked out and went, how did this happen? How did this happen? How did I get to this point? So, you know, I think that was the defining moment for me. And I felt like it wasn't me speaking, like something was coming through me. It was just a hard to explain feeling. And I feel like that every time I'm on stage, that it's something bigger than me that's coming out, hopefully. And it's not a bad something. It's a good something that people can relate to. Well, second question, tell us about a lesson you learned the hard way or or something along the way in your career. And the more you can tell us about the situation, the better, because obviously that's how we learn. (laughs) I think the initial lessons of going out to those small businesses all over the Atlanta area, little clients who were on Peachtree software, it was never an accountant who had been handed the software in those days. It was somebody's wife or somebody who was low on the totem pole, and the owner would come in and say, here's the software, load it up, and you're now the accountant. And they'd be sitting there just terrified and doing the best they could, and something would break or something wouldn't work or something didn't make sense, or you know, somebody would come in, and they would call us or call me, and I would come out to help them. And just watching the fear that they had the terror in their eyes about talking to an accountant who spoke this language that they didn't understand. And they were used to accountants using their knowledge as a weapon. You know, accountants, we don't have that much power and authority. And when we can wield our superior knowledge as a weapon, we do. And what happens as a result is that we intimidate these people. They don't value us. They fear us. They don't connect with us. They don't call us to ask us for advice because we make them feel stupid. So I think that awareness and really understanding and feeling for those people what it felt like and really trying to bridge that was kind of a theme that I reapply over and over again in my life. 
when it even became clearer was when I was the dummy in wine country with no knowledge of the language. And people, when you go to visit a tasting room, would talk about the leaves and the legs and the percentage of this and the, and the alluvial fans, which was one of my favorite things, which is a geographical thing about how the dirt is or something, and the terroir and then all this French language. And you go through and visit a tasting room and they talk about all this stuff. And the way you feel as an ignoramus from Atlanta when you finish that experience is just stupid and awful. And you don't value that wine. You don't want to buy anything from those creepy people who make you feel stupid. And that's when the light came on for me even clearer that that's what we do as accountants to people. We torture them with our superior knowledge and our gap this and our debit that, and they don't value or appreciate us as a result. And so we've got to flip that. So I think that the wine industry immersion was extremely powerful for me to really see what it feels like to be in a position of no knowledge in an environment of experts and to really try to make people not feel that way when they're dealing with us as a profession. And that's part of my mission from every stage is to help people take the intimidation out of accounting. That's a great point. Yeah, you're so right. The use of just a little jargon sometimes can actually move from intimidation to to even arrogance, you know? Yeah. uh, Yeah. And it was accounting and technology. We did the same thing. We would do exactly the same thing to people to make them feel stupid. Well, the API is this and the, you know, we talk about the B-Treve and the code and all that stuff. And both professions, both roles or areas are very similar. And there are many areas like that where if you don't know the lingo, you can't keep up. So it's our job to break down those barriers if we want to succeed, I think, especially in an automated world that we're in today. Well, before I forget, actually, after we finish this call, I need you to call my tech company, my managed services company, because I... (laughs) (laughs) They can hire me. You know, that's what I do. I help the nerds be heard, and those are my people. So absolutely, give me their number. (laughs) We can put together a training class. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What's the best piece of advice that you have ever received? I have to go back to the worst piece of advice or the worst feedback that I ever received, which is your communication skills affect every aspect of your business. You know, it wasn't given to me as advice. It was given to me as a negative evaluation tool, but it is the best piece of advice. Everything that we do as humans in the world is impacted by our ability to communicate, especially when we're dealing with technical subject matter. And so communication should be the core skill that we work on in order to improve our ability to do anything else that we have to do in the world. And so it's kind of a left-handed piece of advice, and I wish I had known what to do with it a lot sooner, but communication matters. It matters to your own success. It matters if you want to get the value that you're worth. How we communicate facts and information is how people judge us as professionals. And so it's very important that we work on those skills and try to improve and make it easier for our clients to apply the information that we share with them. That is great advice. Like you said earlier, every struggle that you've been through got you to where you are today. So a little left-handed advice is okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I am left-handed, so it always bothers me when left-handed is a bad thing. But... Back backhanded actually is probably more appropriate for that piece of advice. But that's right. It's true. Oh gosh. Well, thank you. This really has been fun. I know people are going to want to look you up and find the TED Talk and find your book. So, where's the best place online to find out more information about you, Jeannie? You can find me on my website, even a nerd, e v e n a nerd dot com. You can find the TEDx talk. It's TEDx Napa Valley, Jeannie Whitehouse. 
I have a slideshare.net deck on understanding financial statements. The book is on Amazon. Again, look up Jeannie Whitehouse and Google. You'll find a circuitous path to all the stuff. But the website has it all kind of brought together in a rather unorganized fashion, I'm afraid, but it's all on there. So you can go there and start there. Beautiful. Well, this really has been fun. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, that was our interview with Jeannie Whitehouse. Some of the takeaways I personally have from this are, number one, just how excited and happy Jeannie is about her career now. That is so awesome to hear someone that's just really comfortable with what they're doing. And secondly, how it's really because she became more aware of herself, you know, her strengths and her drawbacks, frankly, and how she's been able to use that knowledge to structure a career and a life that she wants to lead. You can tell she really is super happy with what she's doing now. If you found value in this episode, like I always mention, please check us out online as well. You can find us at whereaccountantsgo.com. And please don't forget to leave us feedback. We would love to hear from you. Click on Ask Mark on the upper menu bar on your computer or on your phone, wherever you have a microphone, and leave a message for us in your own voice. I would love to hear from you. And while I'm on that topic, I wanted to thank our most recent podcast reviewer as well. I'm not sure how to pronounce this, so I'm going to spell it. It's J-E-R-K-Y-I. Thank you so much for leaving that last podcast review. It warms my heart anytime we get a review. Thank you so much. Well, thank you to the audience for joining us. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast, and we will see everyone next week. There's more to come.